But I want to begin by just reading Mark 10, and, uh, and then we'll jump in this morning. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, I need to admit here that I was actually going to skip these verses here because I felt like I had dealt with some of this in a similar way the last time Jesus interacted with babies earlier in Mark. But as I was reading a commentary and looking at the rich young ruler, which we're going to do next week, uh, the recognition that actually the two stories fit together. Matter of fact, in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every book, those three books that detail the life of Christ, this story of interacting with the kids is right next to the rich young ruler. And I think that's no coincidence that God did that in orchestrating that for us even here today. But as I dug into the text here as well today, I kind of paused and just said, boy, God was in charge of this one because we had scheduled Sarah to come up here about a month and a half ago and I didn't even know that I was going to be preaching on this section of scripture as well. So I feel like God orchestrated what he wants to do with us this morning. But this morning, four verses, and this applies to both adults and children. Now, look, I want to put just for 15 up on the screen by itself and this is what it says, truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That word whoever is really not directed toward children. It's directed toward adults. So for an adult to come into the kingdom of God under the reign of God, he's saying that there must be an attitude demonstrated like children. But you notice that he states it in the negative. If one doesn't, the phrase there, receive the things of God like a child, there are consequences. One can't enter the kingdom of God. And it's fair for us to assume that this would include salvation. That's why it's connected here even to next week. But one can't come into the kingdom, understand, without having a saving faith. That one can't be in the kingdom without being born again. But he's illustrating this issue using children. So as an adult, though, what does it mean to receive the kingdom like a child? Now here's where I think some words are very important. Because understand the Greek word child here isn't talking about a young person, a teenager. The word that's translated infant here, or child here, there's really two words. One of them in Luke uses the word brephos, if you know Crisis Pregnancy Center here in town. It means a brand new baby that's just out of the womb. And then Mark and Matthew here, they actually use a different word, paideon. It's a child that cannot survive without an adult taking care of that child. 
So the summary here, if I were to give a summary of what this means for us this morning in application for adults, if you're following along in the outline there in the bulletin, I said it this way. Entrance to the kingdom demands an attitude of dependency, of dependency on God. It's a childlike faith. It's a childlike dependency. It's foundational to life. It's assumed, again, that life comes from another. The sustaining of life comes from somebody else outside of ourselves. We realize a child is dependent on another person. We depend on God for salvation through faith. We depend on God for forgiveness. We depend on him to care for us. Matter of fact, as I was digging here, we even depend on him for us to define our value of who we are as a person. I want to put up Galatians 3.26 and look at what it says here. So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God, or you might have a translation, sons of God. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So childlike faith, God defines our value. He defines our worth. Within the kingdom, our identity is built on a dependent relationship with Christ. It has nothing to do with whether we're male or female. It has nothing to do whether we're a slave or a free person. It has nothing to do with the color of our skin or our economic position or education. Those aren't the things that God defines in our value. It's that we are his child, period. See, one of the marks of a disciple of Christ really is how we function in this world. And the defining mark of a child, a childlike faith, is that we are dependent on Jesus. Our hope, our faith, our trust, our desire is completely in him, regardless of what goes on in this world. And we have a broken world. And it demands that we have a faith like a child of dependency on Jesus. But there's also another issue in this text this morning because he's talking, again, he gives us some hints of more than adults. This is more than just adults. See, this relates to children as well. I want to put a picture up on the screen here this morning. This is my great-granddaughter, my last one. This is Sydney Rose. So I get to be up here and brag about my kids. Okay, that's all right. Lives east of Sacramento. Josh and Bethany live there. Her, you notice the dark hair. Uh, her grandmother, Josh's mom, is a Hispanic and African descent, and uh, so that's where they get the dark hair. She gets her dark hair from. But let me throw you kind of a hard question here with this little child. If Sydney would have died before childbirth, what would have happened to her? If there would have been complications. What would have happened? Now, most people assume that Sydney would have been in the hands of God, in the arms of God. But let me ask another question. What scripture would you point to to affirm that belief? Could you actually turn to a passage and go, I think this is true? See, what do you do when a child, a young child, maybe dies from SIDS or some other issue, 
We had good friends in, in, in Brainerd, and Ross and Kathy, Ross was an elder down there for years, and Ross and Kathy lost their only son, a little toddler, where the grandparents backed out of the driveway and ran over this little boy. What would you tell them in that instance? What do you believe? See, it has been a difficult question for many people to face because even your tradition of what you grew up in, your faith background, really sometimes determines what you believe on this issue. Now, I'll say this. Deanna grew up in a tradition that was a little different than mine, and they believe that baptizing of a child was the saving feature of the work of baptism. And it was her sister who came to faith later on after high school and got married. And, and, and Don and Char were, were, had their first child. And um, they came back. They had been stationed in the Bahamas. And they came back. And the pastor of that church where, where she was at came out and met her and said, basically said this, if this little child dies before being baptized, that baby's going to end up in hell. What would you say? Now, what it did, understand how God used that, it stirred her family in such a way where they had to begin to dig into the scriptures and go, what do the scriptures say about salvation? What does the scriptures say about children? What does it mean to be born again? All of those things actually God used in bringing her mom and dad to faith. But here's, again, where I think some people go on this issue. is well, well, this child, Sydney Rose, she's just innocent. She's innocent. And therefore, we assume that God takes care of her if something should happen. But if you believe that, you got some problems with the scriptures. And let me put one up on screen to show you this in Psalm 51. Here's David writing. He goes, this is his confession, but look how he writes it. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. But look at this. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Do you understand what that's saying? Very pointedly, you just can't get around this passage. That within... When a child is conceived, there's something, sin is already tainting that child. There is no innocent children. Well, then what do we do? But, but understand that idea here of there's no innocence is centered around the word depravity. A, a toddler still has depravity. And I want to prove it to you by giving, showing you kind of the, the 10 rules of a toddler. Let's go to that next slide here. Here's the rules of a toddler. If I like it, it's mine. If it's in my hand, it's mine. If I take it from you, it's mine. If I've had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if I'm building something, all the pieces are mine. If, I, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. And number nine, if you're playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. You go, isn't that true? But let me show you number 10. If it's broken, it's yours. Okay. <laughs> but, but we laugh and we go, all of those things are true of a child in the nursery. You just are kids at home. 
Mine, mine, mine. Folks, that is the selfishness, the sin nature of a child at a very young age. Kids have a sin nature. They've been tainted by sin. And you go, what's the answer? How about salvation and eternity? Then how does it fit here? Well, here's where David actually gives us another hint. I want to put it on the screen 2 Samuel 12, which understand the context of this is David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he had fathered, conceived a child. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him. And he tells David, Nathan tells David, that because of this, this child is going to die. That's the context. And then David, what he does is he, he mourns and he, and he changes his clothes and he goes into a state of mourning, hoping that God would relent and allow that child to live. But look at 2 Samuel 12, 22. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? Look at what he says. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. What's David saying there? He's implying that when he dies, he will go and he will see his son someday. Now here's where I want to jump back to Mark because there's a connection to our text today. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now remember here again, the word children is young. It's, it's really toddler on down. Those that, that Jesus could hold in his arms and scoop them up. But he makes this very important statement, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now this implies that this child that he's holding is within the kingdom of God. Now, here's where I, get, I have to interject one statement here. Many people who believe in infant baptism go back to this passage and point to this. And guys, there's no hint of any kind of baptism issue as Jesus speaks to it here. But Jesus implies that this child, that these children that I'm holding are within the kingdom. Let me give you that first bullet there for children on your notes. I think this, we can firmly depend on God's grace for little children to be in the kingdom of God before a saving faith is understood. Now hear me, it isn't innocence at all. The child that still has the depravity, but it is truly the grace of God that's going on here. For such belongs the kingdom of God. That phrase is saying that groups like this are within the kingdom. And that God is holding on to them. And it might be individuals who grow up who mentally never can understand what it means to have faith in Jesus. But I need to throw you one more piece of evidence here from this passage this morning. Look at verse 16. I'll put that on the screen. And he took them in his arms... And he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The other text says he also is praying for them as well. 
So this one more thing I discovered, this is a new one for me that I discovered. And, and the guy said it like this, Jesus doesn't bless unregenerate people. He only blesses those that are within the kingdom, those that have a salvation in that context. Understand, if people were outside the kingdom, for those shaking their fists at God, who were denying God, they didn't care about God, the, the message for Jesus was not a blessing. It was saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So I believe that Jesus, by blessing these children, it's an implication that, again, that they're in God's hands and under the rule and the reign of God. But this, again, is where some people believe that grace covers everybody, covers all people, a type of universalism. And I go, no, that's not what the Scripture teaches. That's not biblical. There is no universal salvation. See, the fact exists that grace covers these kids. But when a place, when people come, can understand of what depravity, what rebellion against God means, at that point, the wages of sin is death. And regeneration must come when the Holy Spirit works and convicts and opens up their eyes and they need to come to a place where they go, I need a Savior to cover my sins. You catch what I'm saying there, that there is an age, and we call it maybe the age of accountability. There might be better phrases, but there's a place where at some point people have to respond in faith. But I think there's another consequence. In your notes, I said it this way. Even small children can become regenerated believers of Jesus Christ. My daughter, my uh, granddaughter in uh, California, she's five. And it, my daughter called me up here maybe a month or so ago, and after a long conversation, it was talking about Jesus and hell and faith and sin and what that meant. We really believe that Addie, at five years old, put her faith in Jesus, that she understood enough at that point to move and say, I want Jesus. Now here again, i got to warn parents, if you're a parent here this morning, please don't manipulate your kids into saying a prayer that somehow alleviates your fear of eternity. And I've known parents who've done that. I've asked kids, one of the students I remember in eighth grade, my mom made me say this prayer to ask Jesus into my heart. And I go, no, that's just not appropriate. But I've got to go to an intense application here that it's hard and it's kind of a reality check. Look at verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Them is the parents. Okay, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Folks, the attitude of the disciples here really stunk. What they were doing is they were looking at the parents and, and keep those darn kids away from Jesus. We can speak for Jesus that Jesus has more important things to do than to hold and to pray and to bless these kids. But let me give the application of that. Next bullet there. Folks, Jesus cares about children and infants. He cares Children are important to Jesus, and he speaks to where, I think, the application, we need to care as a church as well. 
We are also to care about children. It means that we evaluate, even as a church, how we're doing in our effectiveness of children and children's ministries. In every area of, of ministry, there needs to be the goal of helping children, matter what age, all the way up through youth and adult, whatever, is that we need to help them come to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to serve him and turn around and help somebody else. But you realize, for example, that holding babies in a nursery, how absolutely vital that can be. It is a ministry. But here's where I would challenge you. If, if you work in the nursery here, here, add this one piece from this passage. It's, it's actually from the Luke one where he prays. For them. What if you were holding the babies in the nursery and every time you held a baby, you prayed for that baby and their salvation? Do you understand that ministry of that issue of praying for them? That's what Jesus did. But we are, as a church, we're blessing families by having the best nursery that we can, the best toddler ministry that we can. But I got to go after another issue here as well. And in your notes, I put it this way. Parents and churches can be hindering children from moving toward Jesus. See, understand the disciples weren't connecting the spiritual world with these kids. And in that culture, they weren't really that important. I'll tell you that. But here's the point for this morning. Parents and churches can be hindering children from moving toward Jesus. Just like the disciples we can hinder children from becoming passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And at times I think we need to stop and we need to, to figure out faith development and of children and young adults. And we need to make sure that we're providing the best possible environment in our homes and in our church to bring kids to Jesus. Now here's where I, I got to bring back an example of something, and we've had this, it's been a quite a while, there's a chart here that we've used in looking at the idea of discipleship. And this is four components of discipleship that we've used to describe the process. And if, if you go out for coffee here afterward, you'll see that those are painted on the wall. But this diamond represents a pathway of making a disciple, one who wants to follow Jesus. And there's these four components. Children, this applies to children and adults. At times, I think we look at this in the adult world and go, yeah, this is important for adults, but I'm going to argue this is so absolutely vital for kids as well. That first base there, you'll see belonging. Kids need to belong to Christ. They need the gospel, but they also need to belong to each other. See, the children need a community beyond the extended family. Belonging, whether one's adult or a student or young child, is critical to the faith development of people of any age. Um, as elders, we've been um, in, in lieu of a retreat this year. We just weren't able to find a date, and we're meeting, doing some extra meetings here through this summer. And last month, we spent a, a number of hours looking at children's ministry. Sarah was in on that conversation. And, and, and this Tuesday, um, the, we're having an elder board meeting, as Tom mentioned. And they're going to be getting some homework. They're gonna, not going to like the size of the packet that I'm going to give them, okay? But they're going to be getting some extra reading. And one of them is in the five different views of youth ministry that's out there in churches today. But another, a couple other articles deal with the issue of the theology of spiritual formation in students. 
and students' lives. But I want to give you a quote from one of the articles that I'm giving them. Look what it says. The faith community must provide youth, and I would include children in that, with significant role models to aid them in gaining experience as adults. It should be no surprise, it should be not be surprising that research has indicated that a youth who have heart connections with at least five godly adults have the best opportunity to develop a mature faith. See, parents, if you think you can hunker down and avoid the world, and you don't need anybody else in your parenting, I think you're dead wrong. I think you might be hindering them, actually, from something profound. But as a church, do we foster relationships? Do we view those as important with our children? Parents, your children need to belong with other friends. They need to belong with other adults in their spiritual growth. And sometimes, you got to hear me on this one, the the key people might come into their lives that might actually have more spiritual impact than you as an adult. And are you okay with it? Or do you drop into a a type of pride that goes, I'm failing? Or do you view it as a grace that God has gifted you with? You understand, as I see a vision for children's or youth, I want the adults working in there to be see themselves as mentors. That they come alongside of students, no matter what age, and they are walking with them with the parents as well. Now, i, I got to say something here. It kind of frustrates me at times, but please don't take this wrong. I was even at a, my son's ministry. I was down this weekend. We we're doing some interviewing. For, he's adding staff to his ministry. But even driving back, I was so thankful for my kids and where they're, where they're doing, what they're doing spiritually. For both Andy and Bethany, I, I, we couldn't be more proud but thankful. But I need to give you a little bit of a secret there. It really wasn't about us. Deanna and I have never parented alone. Never. For Andy, Jim and Michelle Laxon when he was in elementary school, the friends that he had, this couple, they were middle school volunteers who influenced my son. For Andy, it was Greg who did a Bible read-through in seventh grade. And he baptized my son. And he invited my son in eighth grade to go on a mission trip to Czechoslovakia. And we let him go. And it was Dan and Laura Hash who invited him to be an intern after he graduated. He went to Poland, and Dan was building into his life over and over again and still does today. It was Jamie and Annemarque, a single person, never been married. He begins to meet with my son right after he graduated, and they, they, they read a book together, and they pray together. He was parenting as a single person. He was parenting my son. For Bethany, as a high schooler, she started babysitting Holly and Lee Wolfelstead. And the elementary kids, they had elementary kids, and Holly began to mentor her and to build in her life and influence her. Holly ended up, she's probably 15 years older than Bethany, but understand, Holly was in my daughter's wedding, flew out to Sacramento to be in her wedding. 
It was Rick and Connie Jansen who opened up her home for college students to over and over. They fed them, but they were a part of her lives, and Rick was the one that rescued her in changing her tire a number of times in town. And they loved her so graciously. It was Carrie Harris in junior high that just poured into her life over and over again. It was Linda Solberg in college who poured into her life over and over again. It was Dan and Laura Hash again invites her to Poland to nanny for the summer. While Laura was struggling with depression, they still ministered to her. And they poured into her life and made a difference. Parents, if children don't belong to a church, if they are not connected to other adults, you are depriving them of other mentors in their lives. And parents, you need to do everything you can do to belong in such a way that you that they can help, others can help you in that parenting. You know what, there was a couple times I almost came to tears this last year on Wednesday night, we're eating out there. And kids rock, and a couple of these students come running up to Chelsea Preble and give her a hug and the connection there. And then Ruth Tatter, they were coming up to her and hugging her. And I go, that is what we want. Parents, don't keep your kids from other adult relationships. Because if you do, the probability is that their faith will be stunted. And it won't probably, it won't, oftentimes it won't show until they leave home. But that's first base. Second base, you've got to go there. Believing his word. Parents, if the word of God is not important to you, you're going to be hindering your children from coming to know Jesus in an accurate way. I want to show you a quote from an article that I'm giving out to the elders. Finally, the faith community must call youth to a passionate faith. The church must not be content with the church attendance or simplistic answers. The faith community must raise the level of expectation of youth to be true examples of passionate faith. But understand the research here on this issue of believing is parents aren't doing too well communicating who God is. There was a major study a number of years ago, and the overwhelming conclusion as they looked at youth within churches is that most youth have adopted what's called a moral therapeutic deism. And I'll show you on the screen what it is. It's really three tenets. God exists. He's nice and he wants us to be nice. And he's not relevant to my life with one exception. Anytime I have a need, he quickly shows up and takes care of that need. Then he goes back to being distant and irrelevant. Now, let me go, he quote a little bit later in that same article. Worst case, some teenagers may see Jesus as little buddy who rides with them in their shirt pocket. He's always is there in case they need to pull him out, out to poof some difficulty away. But the problem is teenagers may believe he can be returned to their pocket, conveniently out of sight and out of mind until needed again. Most teenagers are focused on the benefits of religion, but not desperately in love with Jesus. You go, that is the issue, folks. But this study concludes as one conclusion says, this is the parents' view of who God is. It's what they're communicating to their children. But even there, we can't stop at second base because children must know more than just the truth about God. Understand that it's more than just learning the facts of the Bible. Now, I understand some people, I'm going to be careful in the statement, some people look at the Bible and think it's the fourth part of the Trinity. I understand what the Bible is. It is the revelation of God with the purpose of a relationship for transformation. 
And this is this going to third base. Children must head to third base where they are becoming like Christ. There's transformation in the heart, but they got to be connected relationally to Christ. It has to be more than a therapeutic doctor who intersects with their lives when times are hard for them. See, Jesus wants our children and youth to walk with him and not be trans and be to be transformed and when folks when the heart begins to be transformed transformation occurs now i believe many here and most parents they want this as a goal but i'll add one more piece here before i close because many people stop at third base and they miss out on something Because the idea here, as you're going from third back to home on that chart there, you understand it's about children becoming a disciple. Who disciples? Who becomes an influencer? We want our children to become influencers for the kingdom in other people's lives, in their peers' lives, in even adults at times. See, what does working with our children becoming influencers when you know you ask the question when does it start and can i say this boldly it's elementary school that you're beginning to change the language change the understanding of what it means to create an influencer for your children to be an influencer to in other people's lives that's what we want i just stop preaching here okay <laughs> Let me put up on the screen that verse again, just to call us back to this. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. God wants the kingdom filled with children. Infants, yeah, they're there. But it's more than that. We want young people and children to come to faith where they begin to love Jesus and serve Jesus and and go farther and and they want to give Jesus away to others in this world. We want our children to be participants in the kingdom of God, to grow to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and for them to be on mission. For them to be on mission. Let's stand and pray.